Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, Where are you? Where, from where do you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From roaming about the earth and walking upon it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. That little excerpt, that introduction to the, the book of Job, always strikes me. Uh, and it strikes me because of all the people on planet earth, God selected Job as an example. As one that he would point to saying, now there's a man who follows me. Similarly, today, as we go through uh, 1 Corinthians and our journey through First and Second Corinthians uh, this year, I think the Apostle Paul would say, now there's a church that follows God. And my hope is today, as we look at 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, Corinthians, sorry, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, uh, that we will, as individuals and also as a church, learn to be an example, as was Job as was the church at Thessalonica. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do turn to you in faith and pray, God, that you would uh, help us uh, by convicting us with your holy word, by building us up with your holy word, uh, by showing us areas that we need to repent from, uh, and also affirming areas where we're getting it right. It is our great desire to follow you no matter who is looking. We don't live to please men, but to please God. Nevertheless, we know that we do not have this faith in a vacuum. And there are many people who are looking. And there are many people who will not go to a church because of the bad examples of Christians they have seen in their life. So Lord, would you please take us, mold us, shape us into the image of Christ and help us to be a Christian example and use this text today to uh, help move us forward in that endeavor. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are again looking at 1 Thessalonians 1, uh, chapter uh, 1, uh, 6 through 10. We really just uh, started this, um, this uh, series uh, just a few weeks ago. And the theme of this series and into 2 Thessalonians is uh, we, that we are living in the light of his return. Jesus Christ is coming back. And what will we be like? What will we be doing? What will we be worshiping when he does come back? It is a certainty. He's going to come back. It could be 10,000 years from now. It could be this afternoon. How will we live in the light of his return? That's really the theme of both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And as we see here today, uh, we're going to look at five aspects of being a Christian example from the text that Paul has given us uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let me read to you 1st Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, and then we'll kind of talk about how we're going to break that down. God says, Paul says, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounding forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. 
Yeah, you might find some assistance if you look at your home group helps insert. That is something that we use to help uh, kind of uh, continue the conversation about the sermon in our five different home groups as we meet throughout the week. It also might be of use for you in family devotions to discuss and kind of go a little bit deeper uh, regarding the sermon this morning. But you'll see that there are five aspects of being a Christian uh, example here that I've broken down for you here. Uh, first of all, being an example of godly uh, imitation in 6a, be an example of joy in difficulty, 6b through 7, be an example of faith towards God, verse 8, be an example of new orientation, verse 9, and be an example of living in the light of his return in verse 10. So first of all, we look here at being an example of godly imitation. This is how Paul starts off. He said, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now, if you, again, the difficulty with breaking up pieces of scripture is that we don't give you the context. And if you're here for the first Sunday, you may not follow the context, but go back and read the context. Hopefully you have your Bible open in front of you. But the also there connects this passage with what was previously said, where Paul was emphasizing that you Thessalonians, like all Christians, were chosen by God. And what God did to the means he used to bring you into faith was the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says here, after doing that, you became imitators of us. That idea, imitator, is a mimicai, where we get our English term uh, mimic. Uh, and what, they, what he's basically saying here, you think, you think, well, Paul sure is arrogant. Well, he really is worth imitating, <laughs> is he not? He's frankly the greatest Christian that ever lived. Uh, and uh, Paul was there, of course, remember, Paul was there for maybe three weeks, anywhere from three weeks to a couple of months, but not very long because persecution came as a result of the Jews being jealous uh, at all the attention that the Gentiles were coming. And the Gentiles were coming to faith in Yahweh through Jesus Christ. They didn't like that. So they kind of raised up a mob to go against uh, what was happening there uh, in the church. But he, they became imitators of us. And that was so significant because they came from a purely pagan environment. They had no Bible. The Thessalonians is, this first Thessalonians is one of the first uh, letters we have in the New Testament. There was no canon of Scripture at this point in time. They had no Ten Commandments of this time. Paul, in a sense, was their Bible. He taught them truth, and he lived out that truth. This is your calling, Christian. This is what you are to do. You are to be lighthouses in a dark, dark world. This is the goal of our church and every Bible-believing church as well. We should be able to say, be imitators of us. And this, of course, this is uh, something of a theme for Paul. 1 Corinthians 11, 1, he says, be imitators of me, just also as I am of Christ. So Paul recognizes that he can, they can imitate him because he is imitating Christ himself. Uh, so you have to ask yourself this question. You know, with the life that I'm leaving, leave, uh, living, that I'm leading, uh, the things that I say, the way I use my money, my time, the, the things I look at, if everybody saw me, would that help them grow in their faith or would that perhaps be a stumbling block in their faith? It's important for us to constantly be looking at our lives and evaluating these things. Can you go too far with that? You sure can. You can kind of forget grace and you can get a, a terrible performance mentality, which some of us have. But it's really important for us to understand that, that, like Paul, we ought to be able to say, even though I think it would be awkward for us to say, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. You may be the only Bible some people ever see, at least initially. Paul said, and uh, he says, also become imitators of the Lord. 
Uh, Ephesians 5, 1 says this, Therefore be imitators as God, as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So God is someone we're supposed to imitate. God is personified in Jesus Christ. We are to imitate Jesus Christ. Now, as I'm exposing some of the things that we need to uh, be examples of, I also want to talk about some of the things that churches need to be examples of, right? Because a church is only as holy as its members. That is what a church is. It's a congregation. It's not a building. It's the people who are called out from the culture to be different, to be people of God. And, and, and as you emphasize this idea of being an imitator, there is a danger here. And the danger comes in, 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 in old line uh, uh, denominational liberalism. Because they would say Jesus is a model. God sent Jesus to the earth to be an example and for us to imitate him, to follow him. But they stop there. I recall some years ago I was at an Episcopal service and the priestess got up and she, she quoted John 14, 6. This is our verse, you know. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then she went on to say, don't you hate when you go to a funeral and, you, and people use that verse and you think, uh, you think, well, what about my lost friend? Will they not be saved? And then she went on to say, of course God will save everyone. He'll save Gandhi. He'll save the aborigines. God didn't mean that you can't be saved apart from Jesus. He just meant that Jesus was an example. Talk about butchering the text. But, you know, there were probably four or five hundred people in the room at the time listening to what this woman said. So it's amazing to me, this old line liberalism that says that Jesus is our example and yet you reject all his supernatural abilities and you reject the, the claims to deity. But he was a good, faithful person, so we ought to be nice like he is nice. You should be. But if you stop there, you're lost. You are lost. Let's go on out here, here being an example of uh, joy and difficulty. This is probably the, 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 the most expanded point this morning. He says here, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that he became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Achaia, of course, is another word for Greece. So you have Macedonia in the north, Greece to the south here. So he's clarifying this idea of how their example even further here, uh, that they had received the word. The word always comes first. Someone will not come to faith in the Lord without the Bible. And, of course, the Bible is associated with the Holy Spirit. He inspired it. He also applies it to our hearts. So it's always the case because the word does not return void. 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All Scripture, all Scripture, all 66 books of the Bible, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There is power in the Word of God. And when, if you go to a church that feels like it has to manipulate you to the cross, they have no confidence in the Word of God. They have no confidence in the Word of God. You want to go to a church where people are convinced this really is the Word of God and they trust the Word of God to make the effect instead of... A sales pitch. John Calvin wrote, The Holy Scripture will never be of any service to us unless we are persuaded that God is the author of it. Therefore, the Holy Scripture will be lifeless and without force until we know it is God who speaks in it and therefore for reveals His will to man. Uh, you, many of you know I teach a freshman course at Anderson University called Introduction to the Bible. 
And there's really three sections to that Bible. We close with the New Testament. In the middle there, we have the Old Testament. But we spend the first third of the course teaching students where the Bible comes from. Because if you reject the authority of Scripture, the rest of it just doesn't matter. But if you realize this is a book given to us by God himself, every word matters. Rick Phillips, our friend at Second Presbyterian Greenville, says this. God's attributes of omniscience, omnipotence, and sublime wisdom enable him to declare perfect truth at all times, while his attributes of holiness and faithfulness oblige him to speak only the truth. Now, that's important for new believers who are coming to faith to know that this book is actually from God and that God cannot lie and God is love. But it's also important for us as we go through tribulations, difficulties, because what's the first thing that comes to mind when you're going through a personal struggle? You're being crushed right now by the world. You're having financial difficulties, family difficulties, class difficulties, whatever it might be. You'll start questioning God's word. Well, that's original. Like the devil didn't do that in the garden thousands of years ago. Or we don't know how many years ago. Question God. Did God really say? We does the same thing for you. If God was really a God of love, would he allow you to go through this? If he was really a God of truth, would this have happened when you did this? Listen, this, you will beat yourself to death or allow the devil to beat you up if you don't plant your feet on the truth of sacred scripture. That it is God's holy word. And it has to be that way. So this, they are a great example of what it means to receive the word of God in Thessalonica. And another great example is Lydia in Philippi. You know what? I, one of the things I love, again, people get all upset. At, you know, feminists get upset at Christianity. I think Christianity did more to unlock the potential of women than any other religion on the planet. You know, the first church plant in Europe was started by a female businesswoman. You know who the second member of that church was? A freed female slave girl who was formerly demon-possessed. You know who the third member of that church was? A blue-collar jailer. And I'm looking at a bunch of white people out here. It stuck in Europe, okay? It worked. God is always using the things we don't think he ought to use to start a church. Well, Lydia is just an example here. It said here in Acts 16 that the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken to her by Paul. You see, Paul also spoke the same things to other people who wanted to kill him. But the Lord is the one who opens up the heart to allow them to be able to grow. And he, he, he makes this connection. They have this wonderful joy. And they do it in much tribulation here. That idea of tribulation is an intense pressure. This isn't a minor inconvenience. You know, in America, we're so, everything's so geared towards our, our comfort, our pleasure, and our convenience. We, we think everything is a tribulation. Uh, these folks were, were losing their jobs. Uh, they were being persecuted. They, they had been ostracized. They might have even been jailed here. And Paul was concerned, of course. Paul had to leave in the cover of darkness. He had to go. So he sends Timothy back up. And he says in chapter 3 here uh, that we would want no one to be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourself know that we have been destined for this. Now, y'all let that one stick. He's telling the Thessalonians we were destined for tribulation. We were destined for tribulation. So the Christian must understand that tribulation, all things that come his way, come from a hand of a loving God who is intensely concerned about the maturity of his children, just like we mamas and daddies are. 
All right? You don't care about the maturity of your children, the happiness of your children. You just, you just spoil them or you neglect them. But that's not the way God is. So the best way to grow us up, frankly, is through tribulation in many, many ways. So the Christian needs to understand the critical role that sufferings play in our discipleship. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. We also exult in our tribulations. Do we exult in our tribulations? We exult in our tribulations because knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Why? Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. I would submit to you, friends, your problem is not the tribulations and the trials of your life. It's that you have unproven character, that you avoid these things and you resent these things and you don't get the grow up that should come uh, as a result. But we were we were literally destined for this. Uh, for, for, for tribulation, because our loving God allows things to happen to our lives that will cause us to be more and more and to become more and more into the image of Christ. Now, again, we're pointing about examples of Christianity, and we want to look at examples of churches while we're looking. Let me expose to you one of the great heresies that America has produced that is going out all over the world, especially in Africa right now, and that's prosperity theology. Have you ever studied? You've probably seen it on the TV. You know, you're sitting there in the hotel room waiting for the meeting to start. You start flipping through the channels. Uh, some, some gaudy throne comes up with people sitting on it and somebody with a more hairspray uh, than car wax is, is, is on there. And, and, uh, and he, he starts saying this and they're really kind of attractive. He starts telling you exactly what you want to hear. But basically, the doctrine behind prosperity theology is that financial blessing, physical well-being are always the will of God for you. Did you know that? And that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's material rate. Well, that the Bible, in a sense, is a contract between God and humans, and that uh, God, in a sense, is obligated to deliver security and prosperity when you do things for him. And by coincidence, that thing that you do from him happens to be to donate to my church. I am being cynical, but I have a right to be cynical if you've ever seen these folks. The atonement is, uh, is, is intended to, uh, to alleviate sickness and poverty so we never go through all these difficult situations. All we have to do is, is to visualize uh, prosperity and to have a positive confession and positive speaks. Proponents of prosperity theology include Benny Hinn, Oral Roberts, Joel Osteen, uh, Creflo Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, Reverend Ike, and Kenneth Hagen. Now, I would submit to you that if you go to a church that quotes these men in a positive way, forgive the Southern colloquialism, but if you just sit there and lay there like a hair on a biscuit, you're in trouble. You need to run like a scalded dog because they are getting their doctrine from shysters, from people who are trying to rip you off and say, you get a bigger piece of heaven by giving to my organization. They've twisted certain principles of scripture. It is good for you to tithe, uh, but, but, it's not, but your tithe is not going to guarantee you never get cancer. And you know what's interesting about Benny Hinn, Oral Roberts, Joel Osteen, Crefro Dollar, Kenneth Copeland, Reverend Ike, and Kenneth Hagen, they're all going to get sick and die, every single one of them. Well, I guess the contract doesn't last for just so long. 
and they fabricate things and they do things. And what they do is they tell people exactly what they want to hear and they make millions off of it. You know what my duty as a preacher is sometimes? The duty of the elders and the deacons of this church sometimes? The duty of your mom and daddy or sometimes is to tell you exactly what you don't want to hear. If it's truth. It's a shame that Jesus didn't understand prosperity theology. He was so busy being crucified, he didn't have time to fly around on a private jet. And we are to have this tribulation, but with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Where does the joy come from? It comes from the Holy Spirit. It comes from that. It's not the power of positive thinking, though positive thinking is not necessarily a bad thing. So it's not that we enjoy suffering. If you, if you come up to me and say, man, I'm having such a good time going through this breakup right now. You know, man, I can't wait to go bankrupt. I mean, the lawyers are so nice, you know, and they have snacks in the break room. You know, it, you're weird. Okay. We don't enjoy suffering, but we can have joy in suffering. That's really what Paul is talking about here. I'm, a wonderful example in the book of Acts, right? And the, the church uh, is brand new, baby church, right? They go in, uh, the, the Sanhedrin goes and arrests the disciples and uh, they tell them, uh, don't speak in Jesus' name. And they say, well, listen, we're here. We're, we work for God, not for men. And uh, we're commanded to speak in Jesus' name. They got the Great Commission, so they're going to speak in Jesus' name. And they beat them. They, 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 they beat them. Uh, they whipped them. And it says that they went rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's what we're talking about. They didn't, they didn't knock on the door. Listen, it's been so, so long since I have been beat with a cat of nine tails or that I have been bludgeoned with rods and that I've been shamed by my church. Would you mind doing that for a little while? That's not what it is. But when it did happen, they said it happened because we were doing the right thing. Doing the right thing. Heard a story about a businessman just this week, and I think about a businessman in Columbia that went through a similar situation where uh, th that, uh, a business venture that they were involved with, uh, the government decided uh, proactively or, or, uh, uh, to go against what they had done. They made a new rule against the old rule that they had formed the business on, and it left the, uh, the company in bankruptcy. And everybody bailed except for this one man, and he ended up paying all the debts. He said, I made a promise, and I'm going to keep my promise, and I'm going to pay off all those debts. He suffered for doing what was right. He said, we avoid suffering so often, we, we try not to even do the right thing, so we don't enjoy the suffering. Philippians 1.29 says, it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, notice this suffering for his sake. If you're suffering because you're just an idiot... <laughs> You know, don't be putting Jesus' name on top of that one, you know. Or because you're one of those uh, Christians that just like to beat people with the Bible. You kind of have this, this, uh, this dark evangelistic style, you know. Uh, that is not Jesus' sake, right? Well, we must suffer for Jesus' sake. So when you do the right thing uh, by living a holy life that is offensive to people, that's what we're, we're talking about here. And this is what was happening to the Thessalonians. They were doing the right thing and they were suffering. This is evidence of their conversion. And he wants to know that. And he wants them to know that because when you're persecuted, you start wondering, what did I get in myself into? Where is God? How come he's so silent? Why am I going through this trial? Uh, Paul's basically writing them, you are doing exactly what you're, you were supposed to be doing. That's why you're suffering and God is in and all over it. Don't Lose faith. And then he, and he, and he praises them for coming out of the situation where they were uh, formerly pagans worshiping island, uh, uh, idols. And you think about part of this joy that they're feeling is because they've been released from these terrible old religions, these religions of appeasement. 
do a study of the great religions of the world, and, and, and you'll see such a marked difference between evangelical Christianity and those religions. Most, most, many, if not most, of those religions have something to do somehow with appeasing God. God is angry, so I've got to do this ceremony, I've got to do this sacrifice, I've got to do these good works, whatever it might be. Can you imagine just that burden growing up with that? That God's going to get you if you don't say the right thing, do the right thing. And along comes Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ says, guess what? God is angry because you are a sinner. And you've done all kinds of things wrong. But I will take that burden. I will appease God. I will be the propitiation, the satisfaction for your sins. What a world of difference. And these former pagans who were trying to appease Zeus and Athena and Apollo with all of their sacrifices, with all of their laurel wreaths, with all of their whatever songs and incense, met Jesus Christ. He said, I've taken care of it. Enjoy the grace that you're under. I love you. I love you. That's deep, and that's what they're going through, and that's what Paul wants to kind of point out here. So a new heart brings with it new uh, expectations as well as these new joys here. Paul closes this letter in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, everything give thanks for this will. This is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I think, there's, I think one way you can have joy is by being thankful. Isn't that part of the problem? We start wallowing in self-pity. We start comparing ourselves to others, and we're not grateful for what we've uh, given. But it's amazing to me how Paul commands us to rejoice always. Rejoice always. And I'm thinking, Paul, you didn't have an autoimmune disease, did you? Paul, you didn't have a mortgage, did you? You didn't have uh, disappointment in family, did you? You didn't have... No, no, he was just almost stoned to death, shipwrecked three times. Do I have to keep on with the list, right? Now, again, it's not like he's like, hey, they're stoning me. Hey, batter up. Yeah, we're having a good time. He grieved for their sin as much as anything. But he kind of himself... It was, he thought it was amazing that he was worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. Joy is so important that Paul places it number two in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. This idea of joy of the Holy Spirit, uh, one commentator says this, This is not to say that Christians never grieve or walk in spiritual shadows. Instead, even with tears on our cheeks, we can access a joy that comes from above. This happens when we take our griefs to the Lord and receive the peace and joy that only His Spirit can give. So joy is kind of our default. It's our reset button. When we go through a crash, we go back to the joy setting. In, in this, I kind of want to talk about this idea in relation to the virtue of self-control. Paul mentions that as the fruit of the Spirit. Of course, Peter mentions that in his list of things that we ought to do, that if we're not doing, we will not have assurance of salvation. The idea of self-control is real uh, critical here. But when I've mentioned to you, you, you should seek to develop more self-control in your life. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Probably... I need to eat less and run more, right? I need to exercise, eat less. You know, I need to quit looking at pornography. I need to quit slandering. I need to, you know, you you kind of tend to think of the physical things. I would submit to you that if you're so focused on those physical things, you're going to miss the maybe the more important thing, and that's the emotional things. 
you are to have self-control of your emotions as well. When was the last time you, by yourself, downed a half gallon of ice cream? Okay. It was probably after you went through some emotional difficulty. When was the last time you indulged yourself on the Internet? Probably because you were down on something. See, we control those emotions before they create some kind of physical thing that's going to become a problem. So we need to show self-control of our emotions as well, of course, as those other things, as our physical body. But we kind of think we can't do that. We sort of think emotions run the day, right? We're, we're kind of like all stuck in the romantic era of our time. That, oh, emotion, we just follow, you know, follow your feelings, Luke. That is the worst advice for Luke. I mean, I mean Luke had a rough life, you know? <laughs> Because why? Because he followed his feelings. Don't follow your feelings. Follow God's word. Subdue your feelings. Control your emotions with self-control. And so he goes on here, so that you became an example here. That idea of example uh, is where we get our word type. Uh, the Thessalonians had really become a blueprint for all the other churches. Paul, as he's going around talking about the other churches, he's saying, let me tell you, let me, t- let me send you to a conference in Thessalonica. They'll tell you how to plant a church. They'll tell you how to, how to grow a church, how to get good church officers. They were his, his example, his shining star. Uh, and they're an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia that kind of be like our church being an example to everybody in America and Mexico. Or at least South Carolina and Georgia. Heck, I'd take Anderson, right? You know, we need, to, we need to live to where people would say, well, that's a church. That's a church that's really following the Lord. Uh, they have truth and they have love. Those two are kind of hard to combine sometimes. Truth and love together. But you might recall our, our study. We just finished a one-year study of 2 Corinthians. Remember how messed up the Corinthian church was? How worldly they were? How divisive they were? How lusty they were? You, I submit to you, one reason why the Thessalonian church was so dynamic and such a great example and such a great model was because of the tribulation they went under. The Corinthian church didn't have that kind of tribulation. It really wasn't, it wasn't a struggle for them to stand up for the faith. They had internal tribulation. They had false teachers and things like that. But, but I don't think the Thessalonian church would have risen to the occasion that it did if it wasn't for the difficulties uh, that they had now, number three here, they want to be example of faith towards God. Verse eight, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Caia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything to you. This idea of word of God, of course, is the gospel message. Uh, he's praising them for their faith in what God has said uh, and their belief in, in God's word. They can do that because uh, of the joy and the thankfulness that they have in life. And it sounded forth. This, this is a wonderful word here. In, in secular literature, it means the blaring of a trumpet or the rolling of thunder. Uh, it's a, it, to sound forth is to blast forth or to sound very intensely. Or one translation says to be rung out. Like a big church bell after a big victory rung out. Bing, bing. Your faith is rolling out like thunder. Your faith is rolling out like a trumpet blast. F.F. Bruce says this, Having received the gospel, the Thessalonian Christians had no thought of keeping it to themselves. By word and life, they also made it known to others. And, and, and they were strategically located in so many ways to be able to do this, to have this example go out, the word of what was going on. They were right there on the Ignatian Way, the connected Rome to uh, what is now Istanbul. Uh, they also had a, a thriving port, so by boat and by 
ox cart and by foot, people were going into Thessalonica, seeing that church, and then spreading the word about what's going on there. Y'all, we are, how, what are we, six miles from Interstate 85? You know, we got Interstate 85, you know. Heck, we're close to Abbeville, all the other centers of the earth, you know. Uh, word could get out. We're on the Internet. We've got people from Russia watching this show right now. Show. Oh, can't believe I said that. Church service. Oh, boy. I've just discredited everything I've said before. Now. Uh, my mind's a terrible thing to waste. So we ha- I love what Paul says here. Again, coming from our, our lesson, our one-year lesson on the Corinthian church, which got a little discouraging every while. They were so fouled up. It gets a little discouraging. Look at the Corinthian church. But he says, so we have nothing need to say. Paul was not shy of rebuke, was he? Paul would let you have it. He'd do it in love, but he would tell you if you were wrong. But basically, Paul is sort of, you know, I'm so used to writing things to the church where they've got to improve. And he just says, I got nothing to say to you. No advice. Just want to encourage you. You're doing great. Wow. Wow. (laughs) That's pretty powerful. But again, you cannot assume that these days, can you? We need to embrace all these things ourselves. But again, we need to as, uh, embrace our, uh, uh, this as a church. I've picked on liberal churches. I've picked on prosperity theology churches. Let me pick on evangelical churches. Uh, in the broad tent of definitions, we are an evangelical church. We embrace the evangelical. We, 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 we uh, embrace the good news that comes to us from God's word. A recent study, actually I think it came out of Dr. A's old school here, uh, basically says that at least one-third of senior pastors in the United States believe that one can earn a place in heaven simply by being a good person, simply by being a good person. Evangelicals, one-third say, oh, you don't need all that grace stuff, that blood of Jesus stuff, just be a good person. It's the Hollywood definition of goodness, right? All dogs go to heaven, that kind of thing. Said uh, 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 others, others uh, say a uh, third at least say that others say that moral truth is subjective. Sexual, sexual relationships between two unmarried people who love each other is morally acceptable. The biblical teaching on abortion is ambiguous. Continuing on, most believe, or at least a third of those uh, polled believe these are evangelicals. Let's pick on ourselves here. That socialism is preferable to capitalism, that allowing property ownership facilitates economic injustice. Now, what does the Bible say? The Bible says marriage, sex is for marriage. It's sacred. It's powerful, for good or for ill. It says that property ownership is perfectly appropriate and theft is wrong. Therefore, that's an indictment against governments taking your stuff and not allowing you to have private property. And they've just ignoring that. And they, they had this summary line. Researchers say this could point to the increase of cultural and political influence in the church. I'm thinking. <laughs> they sound like they, the New York Times headlines. Y'all, you know how many thousands of people go to these churches? They found that just 37% of Christian pastors have a biblical worldview. Now, this is a problem. This is a problem. We are breeding non-Thessalonian churches all over our nation. 
It's not just the liberals. It's not just the prosperity crazy guys on television. It's us. We have some things in place to keep that from happening here. How long would I last if I started with some of that nonsense? <laughs> not long, I hope. We have, uh, we have accountability uh, within our church with elders, dual uh, leadership. We also have accountability to Presbytery and to Synod. We have an accountability of being on the Westminster Confession of Faith. When you come here on Sunday, you've got a Bible in your hand, and you've got the Westminster Confession of Faith in front of you. So when I, if I were to monk up, you could check me on it, right? And we want that in place. When you walk into this church, we've got the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. We fly the Reformed flag. Here we stand with Martin Luther. So we could be just as tempted to compromise, fill seats that other people are, but Lord willing, continue to pray for us, that won't happen. Okay, now four, we see being an example of a new orientation. I love this uh, verse nine. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had among you. So they're out there saying, oh, we remember how you welcomed Paul uh, and how the, that you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God here. This idea of turning is, a, is a, to turn a, 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 a sinner's conversion uh, from uh, evil to good, from, from darkness to light, but it's in the absolute opposite direction. It's not just turning a little bit. It's not a 10-degree turn. It's a 180-degree turn. You go from following idols to following God, and you never look back at the idols. If you do, it's just to learn the lesson of, being, of, of what an idiot you were. When you followed the, when you bowed down to pieces of wood or marble, why would you do that? Well, because you don't know better. Because that's what everybody else did. That's what your grandma did. That's what your great grandmothers did. Uh, so that's what you keep doing. So basically, it's a total reversal of a holy allegiance here. And it, but it's not enough. And see, we think sometimes this is the problem with this kind of legalistic trait that we all have. This kind of fundamentalist thing. We end up defining Christianity by the things you don't do, right? Christians don't do that. They don't do that. That's part of it. We don't do idol worship, but we do do God worship. Now, I'm preaching to the choir, frankly, literally, because we don't have a choir yet. Y'all are it. You're here on Sunday. This is what you do. You know how many tens of thousands of people stopped coming to church after, after uh, COVID? Because they could. You're here. So you turn from idols and you worship God. So it's not just what you turn from, but what you do. But it's so interesting. Paul, Paul hates idolatry. He's like every Jew. They hate idolatry. They were surrounded by nations that worshipped idols. They were oppressed by nations that worshipped idols. Antiochus Epiphanes turned the temple of Jerusalem into a temple for Zeus and offered pig's blood as a sacrifice. Tortured people to death as a sacrifice. They hate idolatry. They know that idolatry was one of the reasons why they were taken into the Babylonian captivity. So here they are in Greece. <laughs> I mean, the main, how many museums have you been to? You've seen Greek statues of idols, of Zeus, of Athena, whoever it might be, Venus. But listen, if you think about it, think about, what, listen to what Jeremiah has to say about idols in Jeremiah chapter 10. Hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord... Uh, do not learn the way of the nations. Do not be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are a delusion because it is wood cut from the forest. 
the work of hands and craftsmen in the cutting of wood. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers so that it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field they are, and they cannot speak. Uh, they must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them, for they, do not, they, they can do no harm, for they can do, uh, not, for they can do uh, no good either. But the Lord is a true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his, at his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. This is probably where Paul gets this idea that they turn from idols to the living God and the true God. He is the living God. Therefore, he is the true God. He is the one God. How does the Ten Commandments start? You shall have no other gods before me. Why? Because there ain't no other gods. They're demons with God names. That's what scripture tells us. All right. So you're thinking, yeah, well, Dr. Campbell, I'm sorry. I just, I'm not going to go home and bow down to a, 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 an idol of Thor. You know, it just ain't going to happen. Well, my friends, you have your own idols. You have your own idols. What is an idol? An idol is anything that we trust and serve in the place of God. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, the Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters, states this. An idol is something that we cannot live without. We must have it, and therefore it drives us to break rules we once honored, to harm others and even ourselves in order to get it. Idols are spiritual addictions that lead to terrible evil. So we end up, we have some form of idols. It just may not be a little teeny statue. So turn from them, the Father, the living and true God. And then be an example of the living in the light of his return, verse 10, and I'll close to this point. And, and to wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Here's this principle here uh, of living in the light of his return here. We are to wait. We are waiting. We are a waiting people. And the closer we get to the Lord and the more we look forward to his return, it's almost like we're sitting on the platform of a train station with our suitcase in our hand. Just looking, looking for him to show up at any point in time. Because he's the living God, he is also the true God. He has said he's coming back, so he is coming back. But, God, but, he, but he's the God who, uh, who, who, put, who allowed his son to be crucified, raised him from the dead, and he is now in heaven. Paul told uh, Titus in Titus chapter 2, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And why is this important? Because he goes on to say, again, this is an unpopular topic. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. There is a wrath that's coming. So while a Christian is looking forward to him coming, the rest of the world, they kind of have a sense this judgment's coming, right? They live in terror of it. Paul is probably comforting them because of some of the persecution they've had. And he's basically saying, you will be one day vindicated from all of these folks. He goes on in 2 Thessalonians, which we'll probably see sometime around February. Uh, for all, uh, for, uh, after all, it's only God, just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. When the Lord Jesus Christ will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of the power. When he comes to be glorified in the saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who believe, for our testimony to you it has been believed. We think, Dr. Campbell, that's kind of heavy. I mean, really, you think you're going to scare us into the kingdom of God? I certainly hope to. <laughs> that suits me just fine because hell's real and his wrath is real. Now, again, if you're a Christian, if you're born again, you have everything to look forward to. But we serve a terrifying God. He is not tame, no matter how hard we try to tame him. This is the very opening of Pilgrim's Progress, right? You've all read Pilgrim's Progress, at least seen the cartoon. Here's the opening scene. You know, scene. You got uh, uh, Bunyan's having a dream here, and he dreams about this man. I looked and saw him open a book uh, and began to read, and he read it, and he wept and trembled. Not being able to contain himself with a loud voice, he said, what shall I do? He goes home to his family, he talks to his wife, and he says, uh, he, says that the, uh, he says, I am greatly troubled by this burden that torments me and grows in this way so heavily upon me. Moreover, I have received information that the city in which we live in will be burned with fire from heaven. When this happens, all of us will be destroyed unless by, way, uh, uh, unless, uh, by a way I do not yet see. Some may uh, find a way of escape. That can be found so that we may be delivered. And of course the result is. And seeing this his family thought he was crazy. Crazy. He wanted to flee from the wrath to come. So as individuals we have that responsibility to live. Uh, uh, in, in, with, that, with that idea of his returning. That living in the light of his return. But we also have to do that as a church as well. I go back to that, that text where 37% of the pastors have a biblical worldview. That is uh, evangelical pastors have a biblical worldview. And I think about, you know, I, I love minor key hymns. I'm, I'm, I'm of Celtic origin. And Celts, you know, we love minor key. We like being depressed. I don't know. It's weird. Uh, but I love minor key. And that's one reason why the church doesn't allow me to pick out the hymns by myself. Because there have been times we've been heavy on minor key hymns and the whole congregation needed therapy uh, afterwards. But I also love minor key secular stuff. And one of my favorites is from uh, Stealth, uh, a, a group out of uh, Birmingham, UK. And the title of this is Judgment Day. Listen to these words. I've crossed every line, broken every boundary, and now it's retribution time because the church that I went to, it ain't so holy. So strike me down, take me away. Debts are due, it's time to pay. Face what I deserve, here comes judgment day. I won't run, the guilt is mine. Still, I'm denying all my crimes. Face what I deserve, here comes judgment day. It's not enough just for you to be an example. For you to be an example of God's limitation, joy and difficulty, faith towards God, new orientation, living in the light of his return. You have to help our church because the judgment's going to come from those churches who ain't so holy. And they think they are. Some of, the, some of the deepest sinners in this nation are in church this morning. But they don't know the gospel. They don't know this grace. They're there to get points with God. And it should not be that way. The gospel is not real complicated in many ways. So if you were a Thessalonian. And you were to walk down the hill towards the harbor. And you were to get on the. Uh, one of the piers of the harbor. And if you were to look over across the Thermaic Gulf to the southwest, you would see right across the Thermaic Gulf the looming of Mount Olympus, the highest point in all of Greece. And of course, in 
Greek mythology, Olympus was the home of the 12 Olympian gods, Zeus, Hera, Poseidon, Demeter, Athena, Apollo, Artemis, Ares, uh, Hephaestus, Aphrodite, Hermes, and either Hesta or Dionysus. And all of those gods who are right on the top of that mountain within eyeshot on a clear day from Thessalonica are all, you could go to any shop in that town and buy a little idol of them, or you could get a set of 12 and bow down to them. But the Thessalonians said, no more of that. They could literally, in their worldview, previous to becoming a Christian, they could see the top of heaven. And because of the grace of God, because of the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the word of God, and because of the ministry of the Apostle Paul, they decided to worship a God they can't see and a heaven that they can't see, but that they long for. And they decided to live in the light of his return. That, folks, is your calling, and that is the calling of our church. May God be able to point to us as an example. Father, we do pray that you would apply these truths to our lives. We need help. We are just so indulgent and distracted and worldly in so many ways. And we know the right thing to do. We don't do it. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. But Lord, as much as anything, we need joy. Boy, if we wear the Christian burden or Christianity like it's a big burden, uh, we are to be pitied. So I pray, Lord God, that in the midst of our trials and our tribulations and all the things that you bring into our lives, let us trust that you are the living and the true God and that you have your glory and our best interest in your mind. And let that give us the joy that we need to be an example. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.